Welcome to Season 2 of Voices from the Land, a special podcast series produced by the Legacy Hope Foundation. In this podcast series, we'll hear about Indigenous language revitalization projects and efforts to preserve and promote Indigenous languages across Turtle Island. Join us as we learn more about how Indigenous languages are helping Indigenous peoples connect, know, and remember the voices from the land. Hello, and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous languages. Voices from the Land is an Indigenous languages podcast produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Its goal is to capture more perspectives and voices on Indigenous language reclamation. We are seeking to capture a range of perspectives to better reflect the many people engaged in Indigenous language revitalization. Our aim is that by listening to teachers, adult learners, and parents or guardians of children in language classes, we can gain more insight into what the challenges and barriers are, as well as the solutions and positive outcomes. In turn, we hope this will form a larger discussion on how to support Indigenous language revitalization. Thank you for joining us. Hello and welcome to this podcast on Indigenous Languages. Our first guest today is Berna Kirkness. She is a Cree, highly respected elder and a lifelong educator from the Fisher River Cree Nation in Manitoba. She is an associate professor emeritus at the University of British Columbia. Verna has played a crucial role in transforming Canadian Indigenous education policy and practices for many decades. From teaching in classrooms to working as a cross-cultural consultant and education director to authoring several publications and books, including Waban, which means Our Tomorrow, published in 1971, and The Indian Control of Indian Education, published in 1972. Verna Kirkness' career is long, her impact strong and lasting, her voice true. Welcome, Verna, and thank you for joining us today. Maybe we can just start by you talking a bit about your family background and your involvement in Indian education, your First Nation home community. Go ahead. Good morning. I'm coming to you from the traditional ancestral unceded territory of the Coast Salish people, being the Musqueam, the Squamish, and the Tsleil-Waututh. And it's my privilege to be living on their territory at this time. I come from Fisher River and lived in my community for the first 15 years uh, up to, I, I took my grade eight there and then I took grade nine by correspondence. And then after that, I uh, left to go to high school. Anyway, my family is Fred and Gladys Kirkness, who have, uh, passed on some years ago. I have to say I had a very good childhood. I lived right near the school, which may be one of the reasons I uh, I really loved school, put it that way. I'm not sure I knew to love education at the time, but I loved school. And so I could see the children out. And uh, the other thing I have to ask myself but sometimes is, did I like school or did I like recess? Because I could see the kids out playing every recess. And then at the odd time, my mother wanted me to stay home to do chores with her, uh, especially wash day. And I made such a fuss crying. And then I remembered her saying, oh, 
we'll see. We used to use part English in our Cree. Yeah. <laughs> okay, she said, go to school then. <laughs> so I really, uh, I had a love for school right from the very beginning. And I came from a very good community. I still am very close to com my community, even though I have not lived there for, you know, ever since I was 15 on a permanent basis. But I've always been home. I'm always proud to say that when my mom and dad were alive, they passed away in 80 and 81. I missed only one Christmas being with them. I was away in Europe at that time, but it's my home. And so even if I'm far away, I'm still the Cree from Fisher River. Thanks to my Facebook friends that are a lot of them from Fisher River that keep me informed about what's going on. So I had sisters and brothers, and uh, sadly, they've all passed away. And so on the Kirkness side, I'm, I'm on my own. But I, I have lovely nieces, nephews, grandnieces, nephews that I keep in touch with. You are a former Indigenous teacher and educator. Can you give us a brief history of your involvement in advancing Indigenous education, and more specifically about Indigenous language preservation? Well, first thing I have to tell you is that when I was a teacher, right in the classroom, classrooms from 54 to 64, the policy in these Indian schools that I was in, the federal schools working for Indian Affairs, had an English-only policy. So with the English-only policy, I had no liberty, no, no way of starting language programs at that time, even though then I knew the value of our language. I always loved my language. I meant to say this at the beginning because I, I learned it simultaneously with English. I learned it because we lived with my grandmother or she lived with us and uh, she could speak no English. So I learned Cree and I was very happy to do that because my grandfather, Jim Curtis, lived to 100 and be 104, and he spoke Cree, and I loved going to visit him. And uh, my sisters would come with me and listen because they could understand it, but they couldn't speak it. So I could carry on, you know, and talk to him. And so my language is very important to me, but there was no way to introduce it into the federal schools. I remember a girl that I taught at Norway House uh, in, she was in grade three, I think, Merle Sketch. We're still in touch today. Anyway, Merle was only in grade three, and she talks about this, and she told the CBC this story that uh, she was uh, in the school, and she and her girlfriends were talking Cree. And of course, there's a no English policy. So I went over to them, and they thought I was going to scold them, get after them for talking Cree. That's when they first I first started there. And I started talking to them in Cree. Oh, my goodness, the look on their faces, the bright look. <laughs> Even though there was a no English policy in there, that, that didn't prevent me from talking Cree to them when I wanted to, you know, and uh, mm -hmm. to, to allow it, it, it you know, the inspectors weren't there all the time. So, um, but anyway, Cree was a very dominant language yet at that time. I'm talking about in the 50s, and I, I was there. And uh, 
We couldn't teach the language, as I said before. But a lot of the children all over the North, especially the North, came to school speaking only their own native language, Cree, mostly Crees in the North. So they would come to school and sit in the classroom with these teachers that came from the South and didn't know Cree. And they would, you know, they wouldn't know what was going on. They'd sit there and just absorb it. And the teachers didn't know how to teach English as a second language or anything. It was terrible. So um, when I couldn't do that through the federal schools, when I had the opportunity to become the curriculum consultant on um, cross-cultural affairs in uh, the ministry, rather Department of Education in Winnipeg, I could decide what projects I wanted to do. And since I was with the provincial government and the federal people always said, the Indian Affairs people always said, we follow the provincial curriculum. So there was nothing they could do about it when I decided to start a project that that I called the Manitoba Bilingual Program, which meant that I started a project with a Cree language, teaching in Cree, teaching in the Cree language in several schools. I think at seven or nine schools altogether that I chose. Um, And we had to have a meeting with the parents first, and the parents had to, you know, the parents were not easy to convince that they should, we should be teaching the children in Cree, because of their residential school experience, they always thought their children had to learn English. But once we talked to them all and explained to them that, uh, you know, it's best to, to build your own home language, your own language, and English will come easier. And that's, that's what the research says. So uh, we got these communities and the parents behind us, and we, we started this program. And at that time, we didn't have Indigenous teachers. So we had teacher aides, people that helped in the classroom. We still have them today, of course. And so they're the ones that spoke the language. So I remember each of these places, it's a teacher aides that did the work. And it's important to know that we started from the four-year-olds, nursery, kindergarten, grade one, two, and three. That was how the program was. So when we first started, we just started with the first year, the little ones. Mm -hmm. And all the first two years were all in the the Cree language, or I think I had Soto Ojibwe schools, a couple of them too. And so we worked out a program the teachers that were teacher aides, we got a program started at uh, the University of Manitoba called PENT. I think I mentioned that last time I was on. Uh, so that these teacher aides could become qualified. So every summer from May, June, July, they went to Brandon University. And eventually they got their uh, their degrees. But they But they kept working in the schools and there were... You know, we got more and more people involved. So, so they were projecting and using the language. So the children were learning very quickly. Even though we wrote out a bunch of readers and uh, we used English Roman uh, orthography, uh, not syllabics, which may have been a mistake, but uh, we used uh, the Roman orthography. And we made about, I remember one time we made about 16 readers and we thought, oh boy, this is going to last us for the whole, you know, for, for a long time. 
they had them done in about uh, in about two weeks. <laughs> they could read them all. Yeah, yeah. so it was amazing. Uh, so anyway, you know, with the program, we we called it language shift. It's not a not something I thought of. It was already done in some other places, and I found out about it, and I followed the pattern. So in grade one, they started teaching English as a second language. And so gradually, grade two, three, they, they took on more English. So by the time they were in grade three, they could manage in English as well as in, uh, in their own language. I can't explain all this. It's, it's in this book here that I wrote about, <laughs> if anyone wants to look at it, because it was very important. We had a person study this and look at the, the children that had this program, the indigenous children that were in this Cree language project, and those that were not. And what they found was the Cree speakers in their own language and those ones that only were doing English, they were at the same level. But the important thing was the self-image of the Cree kids was up here, whereas mm -hmm. the other was lower. So, so it just shows that pride in your language, you know. And so that program went on for quite a while, and eventually it discontinued in some places. You know what would happen? We'd, there'd be a new principal come in, and nobody would tell them that they had this special project, and they, they wouldn't think it was a good idea, and so they didn't support it. One of the places that went the longest, and if anybody's looking to hear more about this, Rebecca Ross from Cross Lake, I would say she's really responsible for holding that program together for, I think it was 12 years that they did this program. They were yeah. the longest of any. And they, see, they had to get the program, they had to do the curriculum, they had to do the materials. There was a whole lot of work, and Indian Affairs was at least supporting them in in being able to get these supplies. And then when that ran out, you know, that was more or less the end of it. But this is important to, uh, that I say, we can't do that now, unfortunately, or maybe we still could in some areas, but it yeah. is important to know your own language. Learning a second language is easy, but if you'd interrupt your language like Cree, if it was, if it was interrupted for them, and so English, you know, is not developed in a good way either. Yeah. So that's one of the things I wanted to talk about, uh, Gordon, because uh, it was very important program. And yeah. uh, it should have been handled differently. It should have gone on to more schools and it should have. Today, we would have language speakers yet, you know, yeah. and uh, maybe the South would have caught on a little bit more. And even today, I say the North has to teach the South mm -hmm. because the Northern people have a better grasp of the language than the Southern, well, I guess I'm talking about Fisher River, <laughs> yeah. the Southern Crees, although... I'm so pleased to I'll say right now that with the efforts being made, though, in all of these schools today, mm -hmm. Indian Affairs no longer can block this. And, you know, over time, this is I'm talking about many years ago here, but over time now, they've been able to introduce various, yeah. various programs. And I know it's still a hardship in, in many ways to, to get uh, I was going to talk about this later, but, you know, to 
develop curriculum and make materials and to have sufficient numbers of teachers. Because now with the numbers of teachers we have, there are more qualified teachers and uh, the system seems to require that now. But it's it was one thing that I felt very strongly about. And uh, after I left, the person that followed me was Ida Wasakis. And she really, you know, continued that job and did did a good job, yeah. because I I left uh, that wonderful work with the curriculum branch because I was asked by the Manitoba Indian Brotherhood to come and uh, write the position paper for Waban for the education part, yeah. and so I couldn't resist doing that, and so I had to leave one good thing to go to another good thing. Yeah, before you go on. Uh... Just back up a little bit. You're talking about the program that was becoming successful as you were integrating Cree language uh, into schools. What is the name of this project again? Do it have a name? We, it was called the Manitoba Native Bilingual Program. Manitoba. Yeah, I, I wrote it up too. I, I did lots of writing all, all along. So I have a, a little pamphlet here. Yeah. It's... <laughs> Uh, that describes how we did the program because I I haven't been able to really tell it and it's where easier would, if you read it. Where would we, can we get a copy of this uh, somehow? Uh, Probably just from me. I don't even yeah. know if there's any more. I, I, can, uh, I can make a copy of this and uh, give it to you. It's just, sure. it's, yeah. it's still maybe something useful. You also mentioned uh, a book on languages. This one here, yeah, this this one, yeah, Aboriginal languages. Uh, and what I wrote in here, Gordon, is I spoke a lot at a lot of conferences about yeah. Indigenous languages before it was popular to talk about them. Yeah. Like I talked for, give you an example, Aboriginal languages, confusion and uncertainty continues. You know, that yeah. was one yeah. of the topics. Mm -hmm. Another one banking our aboriginal languages because for a long time there was a doldrum nobody seemed to care about right. these languages and so i was telling them the least you can do is bank the languages but tape these elders right there that are good at uh, you know that know the language well tape them and i i think a number of people did i wrote about recap of course and one time the, they offered 20 million, and I, I wrote this article, how far will 20 million go? Not very far, but I will tell you about another project that uh, I had uh, worked on earlier that should have brought a lot more money than that. Mm -hmm. so, so should I talk about that one? Or yeah, you go, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah, um, we, it was back in 1988. David Crombie was the Secretary of State, and we used to have these Aboriginal languages conferences. And they, at that time, they were working hard on an Aboriginal languages act. And uh, so they did come up with something. I, I don't really remember where all that went in the end. But uh, uh, something came up there during that discussion about heritage centers, uh, heritage language centers. So a um, political colleague and myself thought, well, that's such a good idea. Maybe we should have an Indigenous heritage, you know, 
or we don't use indigenous yet then, but the Aboriginal languages uh, Institute, Heritage Institute, or like the Heritage Institute. So we raised it at that meeting. Uh, he mentioned it and so on. But uh, that wasn't the purpose of the meeting. It was for the act. But later on, he asked me what I thought again, because I got to know him quite well. Uh, he was also, I think he was Minister of Indigenous Affairs first. Then anyway, he said, do you think the people would want one of these centers, these institutes, uh, heritage center or uh, center, I'll call it. And so I said, well, I'm not sure, but, uh, you know, because there were some people doubting it at that uh, conference. So he said, how about doing a study for me and going around the country and ask various uh, groups that you think are uh, critical to this uh, decision, you know? So I got hired to do it, and I was at UBC already, so I took a leave. It was only three months, I think. And uh, and I went off to prominent people, groups, uh, all the way across Canada and talked to them. And uh, I got the answer. The answer was, no, we don't want a heritage center because that means a building would sit in Ottawa, and uh, you know, or sit yeah. in Winnipeg or, or somewhere, and it's a physical building. That's not what we want. We want to be able to do things in our own community. We have our ideas, you know, we have things happening. We just don't have the money to do all this. And so um, so that was what uh, was happening. So they were, were not really in favor of this heritage center that thought had thought was a good idea, but I could understand them. So we, we changed the focus, I mean, to uh, Aboriginal languages initiatives, local. They wanted to do it local. They wanted to be able to have a pot of money that they could ask for money so that they could do what they wanted to do. So I had, uh, at this point then, a past deputy minister was assigned to work with me on writing up the report. So we wrote up the report, and it's a good report, and we asked for $100 million for local language initiatives and described everything. It was a report and uh, how it would work and, and so on. It could work almost like um, they would apply to it like you would for grants, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But it would be for local, local, $100 million. And you know what? David Crombie, the minister, was in favor of it. He mm -hmm. said, okay, a hundred million. And I'm talking about 1998. So it had to go to the Assembly of First Nations, which was not called that. I think it's I'm not sure it was that yet or Mantuba Indian Brotherhood. But anyway, um, so it had to go there. They had to approve it. And so it sat there for, to me, a little bit too long. And all of a sudden, there was a slap, snap election, and the whole thing was lost. Well, a hundred yeah. million dollars at that point, where the government was willing, and he wasn't Indian Affairs; he was Secretary of State. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, and I, I just pardon. That's too bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just because people were geared up, they had a lot of good ideas, and uh, you know, some of that has continued as they struggled along. But just mm -hmm. to think what they might have been doing in their communities for all these years until, 
you know, they're getting dribbles of money now, you know, it's, yeah. it's still not the same. I mean, at one point they offered 20 million. I don't even know if they got the 20 million. Yeah. Whenever Indian Affairs wanted to do things for, um, do things on languages, they always wanted a study. And the study yeah. took all the money, a task force. Right. And then by the time it was all done, nothing happened. Yeah. Over the years, I just saw it to my, oh, it just broke my heart to see it go happening over and over again. Yeah. So, so that was uh, an initiative, I think, and again, that was lost. I'm telling you these things because sometimes people don't know the historical part of this, you know. I wouldn't right. like people to think that people of my age didn't know enough to do something about this. I, mean, yeah. I wasn't the only one doing things. There were others. I'm just talking about what I was doing, you know. But mm -hmm. there were there were people around that uh, had were trying to do things everywhere. It's good that you know. It's important. I think that people understand and they they know that these efforts have taken place in the past, and that this is this this is just not a recent occurrence. There is like a, a more awareness now about language revitalization. So yeah, it's important that we get a historical perspective on some of the initiatives that you were involved in and other people were involved in uh, with different organizations across Canada. What I would like to, maybe if you can touch on a little bit about is uh, if you can talk about language revitalization, language reclamation. What do you see and how do you think this should, what are these, some of the challenges that are, that are going to happen and how do you think we should proceed moving forward on Indigenous languages revitalization. Okay, you've opened the door to the last one that I wanted to talk about because there's a good example for you. From 1986, I think it was, I, I went to New Zealand. I went to visit the Maori people and I found out what they were doing in language. I didn't go there to see what they were doing in language. I went there for education, but I saw what they were doing in language. And they had introduced, or were beginning, just the start of this introduction of what they call the Kohanga Reo, which is really, and you may have heard this uh, people out there, Maori language nests, the language nests. Now, this is something that's, had not been happening in Canada that I I feel really should have been happening. In New Zealand, they started with the babies. They call their program from birth to death, language learning from birth to death. So when they decided to do this, they, they checked to see who would be willing to work in it. They got volunteers. They got together the Maori language speakers and the ones that um, could speak the language and they were fluently. And they got the parents to bring their babies even, their babies to the, uh, to the center. Some of them were just garages. Uh, I got to see them early on. Some were in little buildings. Uh, some were, they were anywhere and everywhere. And you know what? They did not follow the uh, daycare rules. They didn't get involved in the government. They did this purely on their own because if they took on any government uh, thing, then they would have to um, they would have to follow the regulations, like so many square feet for one child, and all of this kind of stuff that they have. Mm 
They didn't want any of that. So they wanted to do it their own way. And that's what they did. They got the children together. They got the some elders together, various places across the country. There was women that were working hard, mostly women. They were traveling around talking about this Kohangareo and how they could do it. And uh, they got lots of things happening everywhere. People were working at it. And, um, and so when they said from birth, you know, the thing that people, we have to realize is that even when the child is still in the womb, it's important to hear the sounds. And even the baby, after the baby is born, you internalize the sound system that you hear. And so, so this would work in that way, you know, that they could um, um, be familiar with the Maori language. And, and I should mention that their situation was very much like ours when they got started. Very not that many speakers and so on, but they had the number of them. So they they did that, and um, they didn't get any toys. They didn't get all the things you see these uh, daycares and everything, and these preschools. Uh, they had to make everything. If they had a ball to make a, a ball, they had yarn. They had or whatever it is, and what how the elders did it. This is the teaching, the, the ones that spoke the language, they'd show them, like they'd be teaching them, you know, you know, sew this up and all of this, you know what you do. They, they taught them everything. You make this this way and uh, they'd bake, they cooked together or they sang together. They're beautiful singers. So they just had all these things, but no toys. There wasn't allowed, they weren't allowed to have anything like that. So that's how they caught on to the language. And you know, it worked. And so they they did that for years. And even today, that Kohangari is still operating. And I like I've been, I have to tell you this, I love this program so much. I I must have taken at least four, maybe five busloads of people from Canada, from across Canada. I just advertised that uh, this program was on and I was at UBC, I did it through UBC. Uh, and I, I took people over to New Zealand to see exactly how this was done. And there have been some uh, reflections of it here. One person here in Chase, BC at Atom School, they adopted the program. One of the people, they've even got right up to grade 12, you know. Mm, yeah. So it's a program, uh, it would be like an indigenous immersion program beginning before even the child is born. So this, is, this started when in 1990s, I think you said 1991 or something like that. Um, yeah. Have you uh, had any contact with them and, uh, and how successful has it been? It really grew. And it came into the grade one program, into the grade two. I'll tell you right now, Gordon, it's all the way up to grade 12 and even into university. And this is something that will shock everybody. If you're a Maori person and you only wanted to do your studies in Maori, you could graduate with a degree using the Maori language. That's how it's all through the system now. Wow. At the very beginning, the university used to do it. And so they did it there. But there was nothing from, from the bottom up, you know. And then yeah. each time, all these years, they've been adding their middle school, their next area, all the way up. It's still going today. And it's uh, 
they're still working at it. And a, a large majority of the Maori people now speak the language. So it's it's amazing. So I, I take the people over and they would, you know, have a look and see themselves, how it works. And uh, let me be clear. Uh, the reason I say this, one thing I think we're not trying in Canada, and this is my my vital point, is we're not starting right away. We're not starting with the youngest. Mm-hmm. We're not starting with the, with the babies. We're not starting even with the when they start to learn English, you know, yeah. I mean, they're speaking, when they start to speak, mm-hmm. you know, we start when they start school. I, I don't know what they do. I think they may, there's various things happening in the country. I know sometimes yeah. they start with them when they're four years old and try to teach them, but it's not, I'm not sure it's immersion. It has to be immersion mm-hmm. as well, you know. Yeah has to be immersion, has to be, and I honestly believe it would still work in some places or in places. And I think almost, I shouldn't say some places, it could work everywhere. Yeah, You just have to start that way. And you have enough speakers, there's more and more. In my day, don't forget, there were, there were I didn't even have other teachers to go to, like Indigenous teachers. I mean, we, we were really flying on our own in our separate provinces and stuff, you know. Yeah. But now, you know, there's so there's so much, like in, in Manitoba, all my work in, in, in that area, I my work since coming here was all at the university. But before that, it was all in Manitoba. And uh, yeah. all these efforts, um, except for learning about the Maoris that yeah. came later, but uh, seeing what was happening, and I firmly, firmly believe in immersion, and I believe in starting very, very young. Yeah. And uh, I think that's that's what would work. And uh, the model is very clear, you know. Yeah. From the Maoris, and the Maoris didn't just do that themselves; they they adopted that model from the from Wales. The Welsh people almost lost their language, and they developed this program. Wales, uh, and so they started st- started it like the Kohangareos, the basis of it, uh, Maori language nests, mm-hmm. and and then the Hawaii copied them, and Hawaii yeah. also has had great success with their language programs. Yeah, where would one find this? Like you go, uh, Maori language nest is the name of the. Uh... It's a language program. It's called a. It's in Maori. Uh, it's a Maori language nest, but it's Kohangareo, and I'll spell it for you. Okay. K O H A N G A, Kohanga, and Reo is capital R E O. That's Reo is language, and the Kohanga, Kohangareo. That's Maori language, language Maori. nest. Okay. All right. Well, that's good information to pass on to yeah. other other people who are interested. In, and if, in, if uh, the legacy of hope want to pay for a trip, I'll take a tour over there. <laughs> Just kidding. Okay. <laughs> I'll pass that message. You can on. come with us. <laughs> sure. No, yeah. but it's it is it is helpful to um, to see it in action. But it's it's really progressed so far. Yeah. You gave us some really, really uh, insightful information about the history of uh, language revitalization in Canada and specifically in Manitoba. And you've also, you know, talked about 
the Maori language, I think, is quite fascinating. And I think it's something that we'll be following up with. And uh, unless you have something else to say, Bernard, and thank you very much on behalf of the Legacy Hope Foundation. We really appreciate you taking the time to do this with us and talk about your experiences, your knowledge. And you know, I know you have a ton of knowledge. You're a real treasure to your people, to our people, to Indigenous people in Canada. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this with us. Take a seat. Thank you, Gordon, for inviting me. Voices from the Land is a podcast project produced by the Legacy of Hope Foundation. Music is provided by David Finkel. For more episodes like this and to learn more about the work we are doing, please visit www.legacyofhope.ca.